Amen. Indeed, that's what we desire. And uh, the Lord promises to give it to us. Um, <clears throat> as we uh, continue our study through the book of Nehemiah, remember that this is a continuation of the work that the Lord um, has done in the hearts of his people. Um, there is a revival that has taken place. It's truly a, a thing of the heart. Um, they have um, come to the Lord in humility, repentance, confession, and, um, and they're just seeking the Lord. So tonight we're going to go through a few chapters. Where I, I know last week we covered a small portion of chapter 9. In fact, in reality, we covered just the first four verses of chapter 9. And so we're going to continue through um, the, the prayer, um, who is believed to have been uh, led by Ezra, and is also thought to be the longest prayer in the Bible. Uh, we'll cover that. That's the remainder of chapter 9, and then we'll go into chapter 10 and 11. Uh, much of chapter 11 um, is just a list of leaders who remain in Jerusalem and are assigned to the city of Jerusalem and had inhabited the cities, the towns, the villages around uh, Jerusalem in Judah. And so that's what we'll be covering uh, tonight. Um, <clears throat> so let's, um, let's pray and we'll get into our study. Father, we thank you, Lord, once more for this time that you've given to us to study your word Father, we ask that you would bless uh, this time, Father, that you would give us understanding, teach us all things, and help us to, Lord, um, apply those things that we uh, come to understand, uh, that we gain knowledge of, uh, that we would be a people who are given to you completely, devoted, committed to you, surrendered to you. Um, we desire, Lord, that you would you would perhaps mold us into a, a vessel that more closely resembles you. And Father, that, that you would reignite if perhaps the, the passion and the, the zeal for you has dimmed down a bit. Father, I pray that tonight, Lord, through the study of your word, that you would reignite that as you did with um, your people in the day of Nehemiah, so we ask that, Lord, you would do the same with us tonight. Oh, Lord, that we would um, have a sense of urgency. That we would express our love for you. And, Lord, that we would um, serve you and, and bless you. And so, Lord, we commit this, uh, this study into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 4, we've, we've gone through, but we'll read through, and then we'll, we're going to read through to, to verse 8. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, uh, Bani, and Chenani. Uh, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hash, uh, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Bethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host. The earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him, brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. 
You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You know, as we continue on through this time of uh, revival and uh, this time of fasting and prayer and humbling themselves before the Lord, they, they begin by saying this in verse 5. They say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. It's almost as if in the original language they say, stand up and then kneel. But we need to understand exactly what it means to stand up and what he was referring to as he was addressing now those who were worshiping God, who had come before him. He was telling them to stand up, in other words, to abide, to continue, to strive, to strengthen, and to rouse up. And as people are called to do so, they are at the same time in a position of humility before God Almighty to kneel in praise, to salute, you could say, to honor, to revere, and to thank. And he addressed the Lord as Jehovah, the one true God, and Elohim, the supreme God who is majestic, divine, and all-powerful. He is praiseworthy. He is exalted above all blessing and praise, which means that our blessing and our praise of God does not exalt God's name to the position it actually holds. You know, sometimes we can um, take that praise and worship and even... Um, put a lot of weight on it, and, and yet the very thing that we're expressing to God, the sacrifices of our lips is, and the expression of our hearts doesn't even come close to actually exalting his name to the place that it actually has in reality. But what's awesome is that one day we will see God in all of his glory exalted in his place. And so they begin in this way, to the one true God, to Yahweh, Elohim, the one true God, all-powerful, majestic, divine. To you, you who are praiseworthy, we exalt your name above all praise and blessing. You are the Lord, you alone. It would do us good in, in our prayers to begin in this very same way. To consider God for who he is. Who it is that we've come to, speaking to, petitioning, interceding in his presence on behalf of others. That we would first acknowledge that he is praiseworthy. That his name is exalted above all blessing and praise that we can give him that he is beyond any expression of worship that we can lay down before him. Verse 6, it says, you are the Lord, you alone. You are the one, again, they, they, they repeat this, you are the one true God, and no one beside you is the one true God. You see, for them, this was a, a wonderful confession because for the Israelites, they not only looked to him, but they were fooled into believing that they could worship the other gods of the other nations and they practice idolatry. So for them, this is a confession that brings them back into alignment with the one true God. And they are confessing, there's no one beside you. They're acknowledging him as creator. He created the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. The one who is being worshiped by the host of heaven this is the one who we are addressing. This is the one we have approached at this very moment. And this being true, we ought to be compelled to worship God 
to acknowledge him in the same way, in agreement, really, with all the hosts of heaven. Verses 7 and 8 is an acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. So they continue on saying, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And then the last portion of it says, And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And so what they're doing is they're acknowledging God's faithfulness. God chose Abraham, called him to leave his land and his family, his people, and promised him a land that through him and through his seed, the, his descendants would be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars in the heavens. And they are saying, and you have kept your promise. In other words, we're living it right now. 2 Timothy 2.13, if you consider the faithlessness of the people, we need to understand and always keep before us the faithfulness of God. As 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so they confess, and they're saying, Lord, you are faithful. You have done exactly what you said you would do. You are the one true God, the supreme God whom we exalt. You are the creator of the universe. All the host of heaven worships you. And we acknowledge your faithfulness. And with this being said, now they go into the recounting of God's compassion, his deliverance, his provision, his leading, and his giving of the law. And so they continue this prayer. Verse 9 says, and you saw the affliction of, your, of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant." You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So there's this recounting. It, it's an acknowledgement of what God has already done for his people. And so this is a continuation from a confession of who God is to what he's done for them. Praise God. Acknowledging him for who he is. Remember at this very moment, these people are broken before God. They were in a state of humility, had assembled themselves in unified fasting, dressed in sackcloth, denying themselves all the comforts of life to focus on the Lord with broken and contrite hearts and confessing their sins and the iniquities not only of themselves but those of their fathers. As they look back and recount God's work on their behalf, they're acknowledging his goodness. They're praising him with these words. Psalm 19:14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The recounting, and they continue on. Verse 16 says, But they had... Uh, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. You know what they were referring to? They were referring to Aaron, the golden calf. 
And so they were acknowledging their sin. This is, this is something that can only happen if a person has genuine repentance. Why? Because they are more than willing to confess where they fell short. There's no pride. There's no arrogance. They're not presumptuous. They're just laying it all out. It's a confession of sin, of pride, of, of their refusal to obey the Lord and acknowledge his wonders that he performed on their behalf. True repentance and personal revival acknowledge sin, personal sin, and takes responsibility for it. It doesn't brush it off to the side, doesn't blame it on some, someone else. It takes responsibility for it. And this is what they were doing. Oh Lord, our fathers, they acted presumptuously. They were stubborn. They didn't obey your commandments. They even went so far as to, they acted wickedly. <laughs> they raised up for themselves another leader. And then in that leader, they were looking to even go back to Egypt. Oh, how it is that we're skewed in our understanding of what it was in the past. We're deceived in thinking that perhaps it was better than the troubles that we're facing today, the things that we're going through. Perhaps it would have been better to go back. And so they're confessing these things to the Lord. Verse 18 says, But you are a God, or actually 17b, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way they did not, uh, way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So again, Israel continues to acknowledge God for who he is, his favor, his long-suffering, in spite of their gross negligence and disobedience to the word of God, even committing blasphemies and that wicked betrayal of God who has been so good to them. They're saying after all that, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You see, as soon as they came to a place of repenting, confessing, it was at that point, it was at that point that he was not only willing to forgive them, but he was already ready to forgive them. All they had to do was come to that point. They go on confessing. And we go into their, what they're acknowledging is this shameful cycle of disobedience with the Lord, which we know we've gone through it. In verse 22, it says, And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, 
and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. They're saying, man, Lord, you gave us favor. You gave us victory. You gave us peace. You gave us provision, comfort, abundance. We lacked absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. Pay close attention. This is what they were confessing. You you gave us everything. But even then, even then, you are the one true God. You are Elohim, the all-powerful, divine and awesome God. We took you for granted. We turned our backs on you. You gave us all of that. Because it says in verse 26 that nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. (laughs) Again, they're just going through and they're just laying everything out before the Lord. We are confessing everything to you. We we now acknowledge, we see clearly. Hindsight is 20-20. We are confessing the transgressions, the iniquities of our fathers. This is what they did. And we're saying it was not right. Because in that comfort, in that favor, in that provision, those are the very things that they allowed to distract them from you. In fact, they turned all of those things into idols, perhaps even thinking that it's the gods of those nations that they overtook that they could worship, and they did. But it's the very things that you blessed us with that we allowed to lead us away from you. They were rich. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Listen, there's one thing. It's one thing to enjoy those things that the Lord blesses us with. It's quite another to take those things and put them in his place. To allow those things to then be what we're preoccupied with. God is long-suffering, and this is what they're, they're acknowledging this. Lord, how, 
how wicked did we act? The things that we have done, turning our backs on you, taking for granted those things that you supplied us with, sustaining us, providing for us, protecting us, leading us, delivering us. And yet, God, you refuse to wipe us out. At this point, and we're going to see that, that they said it explicitly, but up to this point, what they're saying is, God, you were just. If you would have just wiped us out, you would have been justified in that. And yet you kept even sending us prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, to warn us. You know, God does the same thing today in that he brings the word over and over and over and over again. And he's long-suffering. He's patient. We should never take for granted those things that he has not only given to us to enjoy, but even more importantly, his grace, his mercy. They were acknowledging and they said, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You refuse to completely wipe them out. You know, God disciplines those whom he loves. But always remember that in that discipline, that he also says that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't turn his back on you in the sense to where he leaves you. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The key there is to those who have been trained by it. Otherwise, you're doomed to repeat it. <laughs> Perhaps another trial, another season of discipline, so that that painful season of discipline would produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness because we have been trained by it. He disciplines those whom he loves, but he desires that we would repent and turn from those things that brought us into that place to begin with. That we would produce the fruit of righteousness and, and thereby prove that we are actually in alignment with his will, his very word, that we have been trained by it, straightened by his word. Well, for Israel, <clears throat> now was the time. Finally, when the, the discipline for them was yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why? Because they were in that place to where they were, they were confessing these things. They were finally trained by it, acknowledging it, understanding it, learning by it. But at least for now, that is what's happening with the people. And although it's grieving to constantly fail God, remember again that he never turns away a cry of genuine confession and repentance. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A cry for help. Is what we see as we continue on in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you, that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, 
In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. This is a, a cry for help. Uh, if you recall, uh, King Solomon had asked the Lord to hear the cries of his people when they fell into uh, these types of patterns, that is, of sin, of, um, of, of uh, turning their backs upon the Lord and betraying him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is God's promise to Solomon. And he told Solomon, yes, if they do this, then I will hear. I will forgive them. And I will hear, heal their land. This is something that as we go through, we see this done over and over and over. Uh, if you are taking notes, jot down 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and beginning in, in uh, verse 18, you go through and this is Solomon's request for God to hear when his people address him and cry out to him. When they find themselves in times of trouble. And this is exactly what they're doing here. They're crying out for help. They're acknowledging God's faithfulness. And keeping his covenant. They have as we've seen thoroughly confessed how they've failed. Not them only personally but in years past, over the, through the, the generations, how it is that they're confessing, we've fallen short, God. We have failed you. We have been, been unfaithful to you. They're acknowledging that God is just in dealing with them in the way that he has. Even in this moment, having, having given them into captivity, they're saying, Lord, you, you are just in, in all your dealings with us. We have no rebuttal. We have nothing to say on our behalf. We're simply confessing that we have done wickedly. Now, this is an example of um, genuine repentance. And this is what a person who is genuinely repentant will say I, I deserve all the consequences. I deserve the very place where I'm in right now. I deserve it all. These are my doing, and I accept them. Nonetheless, I, in that confession, I also repent and turn from that. They were acknowledging that their position under the rule of the empire of Persia in that very moment was their own doing. They were saying, we put ourselves here. And with all of that said, the people simply desire to renew their obedience to God. They weren't asking for anything. In that moment, they were just, this was enough. They, they, they were not independent of any other nation. In fact, they were under, again, the rule of the, the empire of Persia. And yet the Lord had allowed them to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the altar, the temple, the wall around Jerusalem. He had allowed them to do all that and then reoccupy Jerusalem and Judea. But then again, he had promised this, right? 70 years. It would take 70 years. At this point, they were just saying, hey, we want to renew our covenant with you to obey you. We we. We are compelled to, to do that. And so that's what it says in verse 
Verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They renewed obedience. If all you cry out for is God's grace without having a heart that is devoted to his pleasure and glory by submitting yourself completely to him as a living sacrifice, then you don't really know his love for you. And you will find yourself compromising once more. You see, it's his love that and kindness that draws us to him. Uh, it's not his demands that drive us to live for him. It's the very love that he's demonstrated to us. How can we not love a God that demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? He paid for something that we could have never paid for. He saved us from eternal condemnation, separated from him in the lake of fire, ultimately. That kind of love draws you to live for him, knowing that you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him. You owe him your entire life. The people are acknowledging this. The, the people are broken and contrite before the Lord. They acknowledge God's goodness. They confess their sin. And now they want to renew their obedience to God. There was a... They didn't even consider themselves. This was a genuine revival of the hearts of the people toward God. We want to put our name to it. We want to make a written covenant with you. I know that will hold me accountable. I want to do that. Because I am not acknowledging anything other than your goodness, your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your long-suffering. We have fallen short, Lord, and you have not done away with us. In fact, you've brought us back into the land. That is truly beyond comprehension. You have blessed us. We want to renew this covenant of obedience toward you. We want to make a vow. Not only were they willing to write it on a document, but they were also willing to sign it. We'll, we'll sign our name to it. It's not just a generic document where we just say someone else write it. No, we're going we're gonna to own it. And then verse 1 of chapter 10, as it continues, says, On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor of the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, and the names go on. A uh, whole 84 of them, which I'm not going to read, but all of these um, men are, are leaders, the leaders of Israel. Now listen, this covenant that they were going into, um, a covenant is not something easy to go into. It involves sacrifice. In fact, in that day, it would involve the sacrifice of an animal. In having that in mind, we should always count the cost of a covenant because it requires a personal cost, a willing laying down of something to keep it, to observe it. And this is what they did. And then there's a list of these leaders who are willing to sign this covenant for the nation as a whole. They were, they were leading the nation of Israel, those who have returned, but also those who were absent for the nation as a whole, Nehemiah, the priests, the Levites, and the civic leaders are all listed here, 84 names in these 27 verses. And then verse 28, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have acknowledged and under, uh, who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe 
and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. And so it says here that everyone else agreed. Not just the 84 names of the leaders, but we also have everyone else who is standing in agreement. Remember that we're still in that place to where they're dressed in sackcloth. They're in a, a position of humility before the Lord, fasting, praying, crying out to him, seeking him. And they all agreed to abide by this covenant. It says here, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, everyone, they understood what was commanded by God. The law that was given to Moses, that was done by the Israelites under Joshua, declaring blessings and cursings for Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They fulfilled that in Joshua chapter 8. They, they, they proclaimed the cursings and the blessings, and they went back and forth. And by the way, the altar was on Mount Ebal, where the cursings were to be proclaimed from, because the sacrifice would be necessary for transgressions, for the sins of the people. And so they, they agreed. They said, yes, absolutely. These things that have been commanded, we agree. We'll abide by them. But note that this was done publicly. And because this was done publicly, therefore they could hold each other accountable. You know, we've all agreed to this. We've all agreed to abide by the word of God. The law of Moses, to observe it, to keep it. Therefore, what would happen is that, that if someone fell short, then they could be held accountable. So it was done in public. It was done in the open. They all agreed. Those who had knowledge and understanding. And then verse 30 says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, this is the beginning of the observance of the law. And they were giving specifics like these are some of the detailed things that we are going to observe is what they were listing. And it goes on from there and we'll continue on. But this is what they were doing. Well, the parents, this is, these were the parents of the children who were vowing, we will not give our, our daughters and our sons to be married to, to foreigners, those outside of Israel, outside of the tribes. We, we vow we will not do that. Well, that was a commandment of the Lord for them not to do that. But they're saying we will observe that. We will be obedient to that. We will follow the very commandment of God. Today, because in that day, it was customary for there to be arranged marriages, it would have to be the parents making this vow because they, were, they said, we're not willing to do uh, that, or we would refuse to do that. We won't give our children into marriage to other peoples. We won't do that. Today, it would be the children making the vows, the daughters and the sons. We will not give ourselves to marry anyone outside of the tribes of Israel. We promise, we vow, we make a covenant in obedience with God's word that we will not be unequally yoked as you give commandment. We have to remember always that marriage itself is a covenant before God and with God. This is why it is not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon feelings. But dependent upon one's vow before God. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. This is a promise. This is a vow. This is an oath that is taken before God and with him. Promising to keep it till death to us part. And this is one of the reasons why when I'm officiating a wedding, there's the, the vows can be exchanged. And sometimes there's couples that want to write their own vows. But 
they're not really vows. They're, they're just kind of mushy words that they want to say to each other. You know, I don't know, they, they read it somewhere and they want to exchange these things and just say these things to each other. But vows are serious. In marriage, they're, they're vows. They're, it's an oath that you're taking before the Lord and you're making to the Lord. That's why, you know, I tell those who I officiate the, the wedding, it's like, okay, you can share those vows, but you still got to repeat the ones that I'm going to have you repeat. You still got to do that. Because your promise before God and to God is that you'll keep your marriage until death do you part. That's what you're promising. Not only would they, were they um, vowing to not give their children to marry others outside of, the, <clears throat> of Israel, but they also, if you see there in verse 31, they're not willing to do business with people in violation of the law. Uh, on a holy day, on the Sabbath, um, they're willing to forego the crops on the, uh, every seventh year and then the forgiveness uh, of debt in the year of Jubilee and the lands and all, all of that. That's what they were saying, that they were, well, we're going to observe it all. So it included commerce. It's interesting because this is the very thing that serves as temptation for us today, isn't it? The temptation of financial gain by compromising their obedience to God's word. They were, they were tempted in that day, so it is that we're tempted today to do the very same thing. Number one, marriage. Number two, finances. My pocketbook. We're going to address those things just first and foremost, right from the get-go. You see, many people today will compromise their observance of fellowship, service, worship, reading, studying, discipling, as they are discipled, and evangelizing for the sake of making a few dollars to buy a home and cars that will put them in such a financial burden that it enslaves them even further to compromise. And eventually they don't look any different than the Israelites who went after the gods of the nations around them looked like. No different. This often happens with seemingly good intentions. And it often happens subtly. Just little by little. Start going down this path. Again, these are the first two things that the Israelites addressed. The very two things. There's a reason why these are the first two things that they addressed. What suffers your relationship with Jesus Christ, 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Just attitudes change, perspectives change. Just people start changing, detached. Here, but not here. I, I've seen it over the years, I've seen it over and over and over again. It's like, I know what's happening. They're drawing away. Other things have won your heart. You're overwhelmed with these things. You've allowed them to distract you, to take you off course. They are confessing these things. These are the very things that we acknowledge have taken us away from the Lord. It's what they're doing. Revival happened in their hearts. That's why they were confessing these things. Listen, a person who refuses to compromise is filled with peace, joy, and a desire to serve Jesus. That's what, it's, it's evident. Oh, man, I don't care. It doesn't matter what is before me. What matters is, hey, listen, I'm filled with joy, gratitude, peace. Man, I have a, a zeal for the Lord. I have a desire to serve Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
Also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Laying those things aside, deliberately, conscientiously. And lay them off to the side. I'm not going to allow them to ensnare me, to trip me up. And these people were making a vow to not make money by compromising their obedience to the word of God. They're saying, no, I won't do it. But they go on. Verse 32 says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for the work, all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and, and people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. A statement. A confession. A commitment. They're saying we sign our name to this, this very thing. All of these details, they were they're saying this, this is what we give ourselves. We will not, the bottom line is, we will not neglect the house of our God. We agree to give as the Lord has commanded us to give and not neglect the house of the Lord our God to serve him, to minister to him, to worship him, to praise him. They were perhaps remembering that they couldn't give anything that they weren't first given. Everything that they had, they didn't start out having. They didn't even, their ability to, to work and to earn those wages wasn't because uh, they were so good and they did it in and of themselves. It was because God had given them the ability. And so they were acknowledging again, just keeping in mind where they were. They were humble before God. They were broken before God. Before God, they acknowledged their their sin and their iniquity, how they had turned their backs on God, betraying Him, all of those things, and they said, "No, we are not going to be those people anymore. No more." We're going to be generous and cheerful givers, obedient givers. In the New Testament, you can. Refer to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse, verses 1 through 4, which is the collection the saints would come together on the first day of, of the week. Listen, that, that heart will only be known when we're abiding in Christ. when we are enjoying a relationship with him, a heart that is joyful in Christ. We won't give begrudgingly out of duty because we must. It's at that point, like they weren't in that place. They were in that place to where they were saying, 
we get to do this. We need to observe this. Oh, Lord, you are the one true God. You were amazing. You were gracious and merciful toward us. And this is our response to you. Thank you for not making an end of us. Thank you for being patient and, and allowing us to do what we've done up to this very point. We're in Jerusalem. We're in Judah. We're back here after being in captivity, after having been judged and disciplined. And so we make this declaration, we will not neglect the house of our God. And then they go on in chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And so now we have, we, if you recall, uh, what we have described in Jerusalem is that there was a, it was... Um, Few populated it. There were there were few people in Jerusalem, and so what they did was they um, kind of just figured out how one out of ten people who were not willing to come to Jerusalem and 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 dwell there and populate Jerusalem, they were called upon to come in. Now the leaders uh, they led by example, and uh, and for them they. They were willing to, as it says in the first portion of verse 1, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and so they all came and they lived in Jerusalem. Uh, they couldn't ask others to do the very thing that they refused to do, and they weren't willing to do. And so they lived there, and so one out of ten came, and there were those who volunteered to come into Jerusalem and live in Jerusalem. And for those, well, there was a special blessing for them as we read there. And the people blessed all the, the men who willingly offered uh, to live in Jerusalem. And then, um, so they went on from there, verse 3 through 24. These were the leaders, chiefs, Levites, gatekeepers, priests, singers. Um, These were the ones who were described and named, um, and that gives a list all through that. Those are the ones who chose to settle in Jerusalem willingly, the leaders. And so we have the list of all of them. Again, verses 3 through 24. Um, Verse 25. We won't read that list, but you can make note of it. And you can go through it, but those were the leaders, and they're all listed. Verse 25 says, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and it goes on from there. So, This is the list of the villages and the people who settled throughout Judah in these uh, towns. So outside of Jerusalem, um, these were the places that were settled. So that is given to us in verses 25 through 36. And so we have everyone dispersed, everyone that has occupied and dwelt in these locations from Jerusalem to the area around Jerusalem and in Judah. And we have, uh, next week, we'll, we will continue in chapter 12, we'll, where we continue with the priests and the Levites uh, who came up with Zerubbabel, and we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll learn about that. So here's the thing, though, is that these people, this all started uh, when God stirred their hearts, and there was a revival, a genuine revival that took place uh, amongst God's people. Remember this. The people had broken and contrite hearts before God. They also acknowledged God's goodness. We see how it is that they were praising the Lord. They were were, uh, acknowledging who he was and how it is that he provided, he protected. Um, And so they were acknowledging his goodness. This is all that you've done for us. At the same time, they confessed their sin. We have fallen short. We have sinned against you. We have acted wickedly. We have done these things, not only us, but so did, so did our fathers. So those things that were done before us were wicked as they also turned their backs on you. And then with that confession of sin, the acknowledgement of God's goodness, a humility before God, they didn't wait for him to forgive them. In that moment, they said, regardless of whether you take us out of this situation or not, 
It doesn't matter. Why? Because you are just in judging us, in disciplining us, you are just in that. You are good. But Lord, we want to renew our obedience to you. That is a genuine repentance. Come what may, I I know I deserve this, but Lord, I I just want to say from here, this moment, Lord, help me, I want to walk in obedience with you. That's all I want to do. I just want to be right in your own, in your eyes. And that's what they do. They renewed their obedience to God. Keep this in mind, brothers and sisters, as you think about just your own life. You know, to not think too much of yourself. To confess those things that need to be confessed. Oh, how I desire that in the hearts in, in the hearts of God's people, in our hearts, that there would be a, a renewed passion, a desire, a zeal, an excitement about the Lord, a humility before Him, that we're not interested in anything else but just bringing Him glory, serving Him. That's it. Oh Lord, we'll do away with those things that we've we've uh, idolized up to this point. We're going to do away with them. And from this time on, we're going to worship you. And we refused, we, we refuse to neglect the house of the Lord. We refuse to neglect the fellowship of the saints. We refuse to neglect the great commission. We refuse to neglect doing the work of an evangelist. Oh, Lord, that's what we want to give ourselves to. I pray that we would perhaps come back to our first love, taking note of where we turned as the church in Revelation of Ephesus was guilty of. And I have to say, I, I think that the church in many ways is in that very same place. Oh, we can stand on the walls as watchmen. We can discern false doctrine. We're faithful, we're persevering, and yet we've lost that passion, that zeal for God. We're kind of just doing life. And I just, um, honestly, I, I yearn I yearn for the church to be on fire, to be excited about the things of God and that that would show within it. I think we're guilty. I think we're guilty. Father, forgive us. May we not allow those things uh, of everyday life to distract us or take us away from blessing you, Lord, uh, glorifying you, Lord. Uh, may we not replace, Lord, everyday things and say, well, this is, this is our ministry. Lord, you've called us to disciple others and be disciples ourselves or to evangelize others to share the gospel with as many people as we possibly can Lord we're living in the last days and and Lord we just need a a fresh dose of your spirit Lord that oh Lord that he would refill us that he would fall upon us He would anoint us, Lord. That we would live lives that are sacrificial, denying ourselves truly, picking up our cross and following you. 
that we would be willing to forsake all for the sake of knowing you and being obedient to you, blessing you, honoring you, glorifying you. So, Father, may what happened to your people in Nehemiah's day, Lord, will you, Lord, stir our hearts that we may see that happen today? Oh, Lord, that there would be an excitement here in this place to such a degree, Lord, that it would be contagious. (laughs) Oh, Lord, that we would not be able to contain ourselves in speaking and sharing the gospel with as many people as we possibly can. That more people would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, surrendering their lives to him, knowing the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, please help us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I just ask, Lord, that you would do a special work. In Jesus' name, amen.